Um, I want to dig into God's word with you. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to take out your notes and uh, grab a Bible, uh, we, we know, at least for today, we've got plenty, so um, f- feel free to grab a Bible. Um, so we're going to be talking about the ministry of reconciliation this morning. And so it's interesting that um, like, from, a, you know, from a feedback perspective, what I hear in terms of like, okay, so I'll preach on a certain topic, then later on somebody will approach me and say, did you preach on that because we're having a hard time with such and such? So in other words, if money is mentioned, are, are we having a hard time financially? Is that why you preached on it? And, uh, and, and so, and I always respond, at least up to this point, no, like I'm preaching it because it, we came across it in God's word. Like we're moving through the Bible and there it was. And, and what's interesting is um, one of the predominant messages of the letters written to the church is on reconciliation uh, peace between brothers and unity. Uh, there are many, several one another commands in Scripture. Every letter talks about our horizontal relationship with one another, reflecting our vertical relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so we're talking about reconciliation today, not because there's a huge issue going on within the church, at least to my knowledge, but it's in God's Word, so we know it's important for us to hear it. But I always think in terms of preparation and growing um, that by God's grace we move through these uh, beautiful and sometimes hard, challenging texts that God might prepare us for what's coming. So... All that being said, I'm, I'm excited to talk about reconciliation this morning because it's in the text. And, uh, and so this is uh, not a new theme for Paul. We hit this in 1 Corinthians. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it comes up. And, uh, and so in 1 Corinthians, we talked more practically about the need for reconciliation, especially before we take communion. So I want us to have that on our minds as we approach communion in our service. But today, what Paul is going to do is gonna, he's going to talk in 2 Corinthians 5, about the theological uh, foundation and, uh, and backdrop to reconciliation, what should drive us, motivate us, support us as we pursue reconciliation with one another. Um, but before we get too caught up in our own lives for just a moment, I want us to think of reconciliation from two perspectives. One is from the ground. When we think of reconciliation on the ground, we tend to think about our human relationships, right? We tend to think about uh, strained relationships, times we've been offended, maybe times we've even offended, even though it's really rare that we would offend anybody. Uh, but on the ground, we, think, we hear the word reconciliation, we tend to think about each other. But there is a, there is a from the air perspective of re- reconciliation that we get from God's word, that reconciliation isn't just you and I getting along. It's something that Christ has secured through his death on the cross to redeem the world. So the beginning of your Bible begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth, but guess where your Bible ends? With the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth, a complete reconciliation of all things. And so we know that this is a bigger topic than just ourselves, right? And so when we begin to think about our reconciliation with one another, what we need to understand is there is a cosmic eternal backdrop behind you and I working out our issues. Now that being said, When we think about the struggles that we have in our human relationships with reconciliation, um, if we just approach um, the the, the times we've been offended um, from a human standpoint, and we we don't take into account what God would say, um, our reactions to offenses would make sense. In other words, if we've been hurt, okay, and we don't take into account what God's word says, it makes sense to not ever want to be around that person again. That makes sense. Right? Hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. That's 
earthly wisdom, right? It makes sense that we would not want to be around people who would hurt us or cause us harm or make life not fun, who would create some kind of turmoil or discomfort. It makes sense to divide, okay? However, the command for the church is what? Not to divide, not to find excuses to not get along, but instead to unite. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. And first thing we're going to do is see a foundation laid for reconciliation that will help us understand from God's perspective why you and I should reconcile with one another. Starting in verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... Okay, specifically, Paul is using the idea of a tent to describe our earthly dwelling, our body. If our body is destroyed and everything with it, you might add, if our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. So in Christ, something has been secured better than what I have right here in my flesh. If this body acquires cancer, as horrific and as as hard as that would be to walk through, my eternal life hasn't, inherited, hasn't, hasn't come down with cancer. My temporary life has. Okay, This temporary tent can be destroyed because I have a better one in Christ. If our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. So go beyond even this body. If everything that I call my own, my possessions, my home, I'm going to get into that. We'll get into that next week. Everything that I call my life gets destroyed. I'm not without hope. Why? Because this this life is going to crash and burn anyway. My hope is in an eternal life. Now, as we think about reconciliation, this is a beautiful foundation for understanding how you and I then can be reconciled to one another. If you're taking notes, reconciliation is first and foremost based on an eternal perspective. If you offend me, and now I don't trust you anymore, yet God's word tells me to bring that offense to you and seek reconciliation, but I stay away. Why? Because I'm going to guard myself now. I don't want to be hurt again. Okay? I am basing my decision on a temporary truth, not an eternal truth. I think it's quite ironic how the church so often doesn't get along, and small little nuances divide us, and we get angry with one another, and... Churches split over the color of carpet. Yet these are the people with which we will sing with and live with and dwell with eternally. Yet we don't get along in this moment over something so so little and so small. Reconciliation is not based on a temporal perspective. If you just base your relationships with one another on the temporary, then you will most often not reconcile. Because why? Because you expect to get hurt again. You expect that person to repeat the same mistakes. So reconciliation isn't based on a temporary or temporal perspective. It's first and foremost based on an eternal perspective. Why? Because the pain that I feel right now will die with this body. The shame that I may feel right now because of something someone has done to me the most horrific of abuses. It should, should break our hearts when we see uh, people across the globe suffering. Uh, maybe you're, from, you're aware of what's happening in Iraq right now. Some horrific things being done to Christians, in particular Christian women. 
things that don't please the Lord. But what does that person do who has suffered in such a way? Allow that shame to identify them for the rest of their lives or no, have an eternal perspective and say, you know what, when my body dies, this pain, this shame will die with it. Reconciliation is based on the eternal. There will be no room for your anger in heaven. And so when we hold on to bitterness, anger, shame, these feelings that we have once we've been offended, once we've been hurt, what we're doing is we're hanging on to things that won't be there eternally. Our perspective is temporal. And so Paul starts with pulling our minds off the ground to the air to see an eternal perspective. Down to verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, if you're taking notes, let's, let's fill in the blank. Reconciliation is based on faith, not what makes sense. Remember what we started? It makes sense, right? I can expect this person to hurt me. I've seen them hurt other people, or they've hurt me before, or I've seen them do both. That's what makes sense. Obeying Jesus is never based on what makes sense to you or me. Let's, let's, I mean, uh, let's think about it like this. So what makes sense is based on what this organ inside my brain can process and, and make sense of. Little bitty, my brain's small. Yours is small too. I mean, smaller than a soccer ball. And yet we want to judge the cosmos with this little bitty organ. That's what makes sense. Okay, when we, when we live by faith, we live by what God says, understanding his understanding of the cosmos is infinitely larger and more grand than ours. And so when we look at a situation and go, it doesn't make sense for me to reconcile with that person. We're making the decision with a little bitty earthly organ, a little bitty brain. I know you're proud of yours, but it's still little. And we're saying, well, what Jesus said, the wisdom of the eternal father Right? It's not as, as good as what I can come up with. Now, this applies to all um, spiritual disciplines. We walk by faith. We enter into God's word by faith. We enter into prayer. We just prayed in our service by faith, believing that God hears and responds to the prayers of his saints. And so this is no different. Our reconciliation must be based on the eternal perspective and based on faith. Jesus said, do it, so I'm going to do it. Now, does that mean every time you pursue reconciliation, it's going to come back the way you want it to come back? Nope. I have sought reconciliation in situations that I thought were, were slam dunks, pretty easy. Just need to go get a few things straight and walked away feeling like things were worse. I've approached some catastrophic relationships, some really deep pains and hurts that either I've caused or been caused towards me and walked away completely healed in one conversation. Okay? The point isn't that the outcome is what you want. It's that you say, by faith, Jesus told me to do this, so therefore I'm going to pursue reconciliation. He said do it. And ultimately, it's not for my outcome, what I think should come out of this, but it's for his glory that people might see something. We're going to, we're going to go to verse 8 now. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at, and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are Home or away, here's, a, here's the phrase. If you have your word and you underline phrases, it's a big one. We make it our aim to please him. Who's the him? 
Yeah, specifically Christ Jesus. We make it our aim to please him, which means we're not making our aim to please who? Ourselves or each other. So reconciliation isn't a move to try to make each other happy. It's an obedience move to to try to please him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Reconciliation, if you're taking notes, is based on our aim to please Jesus, not ourselves or the person who we've been offended by. It's our aim to please him. You see, there's the great struggle with reconciliation. We think about, is it even worth it? Like, I don't even really want to be friends with this person. Why would I even go through all the trouble? What I might gain on the back end isn't really worth it. Okay, what's the truth behind that statement? I'm saying, I'm, I'm calculating whether or not it's going to please me or not to reconcile. And Paul says, we need to remember that our perspective, our aim should be to please him, to walk by faith and have an eternal perspective. These are what drive reconciliation. Verse 14. It's a beautiful verse. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This first phrase, the love of Christ controls us, it's a really beautiful phrase. It's, it's hard to translate from Greek into English. If you've got ESV or NASB, it says control. I think NIV, maybe in the King James, have compel. One kind of feels like a constraining force, and the other one feels like a moving forward force. And both are really implied here. I think probably the best uh, image in my mind of what this word really means in the Greek is to be saturated by or hemmed in by something. And in this particular instance, in terms of reconciliation, what are we saturated in? What are we hemmed in by? What are we controlled and compelled by? It's the love of Christ. Reconciliation is fueled by the love of Christ, bottom line. Our foundation is an eternal perspective. We're moving forward by faith. Our aim is to please him, not ourselves. So if this in the end doesn't come out the way I want it to come out, it's okay because I'm more interested in Jesus being happy than me being happy. But ultimately what's behind me, the wind in my sails, but also the bridle in my mouth, giving me the right amount of movement forward, but also constraint is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Verse 16 and 17 um, it's really helpful for me. I, I'll be honest with you, it took a lot of uh, studying this passage before, and I still don't think I'm all the way there, before I really began to fully realize what I believe Paul was saying here in 16 and 17. Let's read it together and talk about it. From now on, therefore, since these things are true, eternal perspective, we walk by faith, the love of Christ compels us, Uh, We're aiming to please Jesus. Since these things are true, from now on, therefore, then we're going to regard no one according to the what? Flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, remember when we made that mistake historically as, as, as humanity, remember when we made that mistake, we regarded him solely as human. We, we made that mistake. We regard him thus no longer. 
Verse 17, therefore, since that is true, we now see Christ as the son of the living God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, instead of regarding him or her in the flesh, we regard him and her, him or her, as what? A new creation. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, when we refuse to forgive or move forward in reconciliation, we are regarding one another according to the flesh. The word regarding also translates recognize. It's the way we see that person. So um, up until this point, I'm just talking about how you've offended me. Let's talk about when I offend you. And I'm very capable of offending people. It happens um, often in my house. Um, so when I offend somebody, and the next time they see me, or when I'm away, that's what they, all they can think of. They're, they're living, and they're regarding me. They're recognizing me according to what? The flesh, what I've done in the flesh. Okay, the same is true for you. And if we begin to think about others who've offended us, then we begin to think of them that way. Now, here's the thing. Like, let me just make this disqualifying statement that I think is true. We've been offended in some light ways. I mean, if you're, if you're married here today and you're happy, you're good at practicing reconciliation because we get offended often in marriage in just subtle ways, little snide remarks, lack of patience, okay? But many of us, almost all of us, have been hurt deeply in some really profound ways. And I, and I'm, I mean suffering, I mean abuse, uh, maybe going back to your childhood, um, uh, some deep offenses, okay? Am I talking about the more surface-level things? Yes. But are we also going after the deeper things? Yes. I don't want to think that, oh, this is just counsel for these light relationships I have, the people that I'm just trying to get along with. Like, this is truth that will produce healing in the deepest crevices of pain and hurt in your soul. And so I just want to make sure that we're all together now as we move forward into what Paul is going to say. So what Paul has said here is this. When we refuse to forgive the deepest of hurts, we are regarding one another according to the flesh. How can we argue with that? It's true. When I choose to not forgive you, it's because I've been hurt too deeply. Um, I don't want to let go of this hurt because as soon as I did, all the, as soon as I do, I feel like it's letting you off the hook. Maybe I don't know how. Maybe I don't want to. As soon as I choose to forgive or move forward in forgiveness, which can sometimes be a process of growing in it, begins with a choice, I choose to forgive. If I, if I choose not to do that, I am 100% regarding that person in the flesh. Like you can't argue with that. And Paul says, because all these foundational truths are there for us, we no longer regard one another in the flesh, but we see each other as a new creation. I'm going to give you an example um, from marriage, I think, this, I think this lends itself to some fantastic marriage counseling advice. Um, but this is true for all of our relationships. I've got an excerpt from a book written by John Piper called This Momentary Marriage. Some of you have seen it. Some of you may have even read it. Read it. Um, if you go after this one, like you're like, hey, this would be good for our marriage. Let me just, this isn't light. This is deep, deep stuff that you would be reading. That being said, feel free to dive in, okay? Um, here's a couple of paragraphs from the book, This Momentary Marriage, on this idea of seeing your spouse rather than regarding them in the flesh, but seeing them now as a new creation instead. He begins this paragraph with the question, whose sins were nailed to the cross? And he answers, my sins, my wife's sins. 
the sins of all who despair of saving themselves and who trust in Christ alone. Whose hands were nailed to the cross? Jesus's were. There's a beautiful name for this. It's called a substitution. God condemned my sin in Christ's flesh. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in his flesh, quoting Romans 8.3. Husbands and wives cannot believe this too strongly. Here's where it's going to It's going to get good. Husbands and wives cannot believe this too strongly. It is essential to our fulfilling the design of marriage. This is the vertical reality that must be bent outward horizontally to our spouses if marriage is to display the covenant-making, covenant-keeping grace of God. So the, the reality that my sins were placed on Christ, on the cross. He, he was substituted for me, okay, and my spouse. This truth that's true vertically needs to be bent out horizontally. Now, we're going to read another paragraph explaining more about what that means. And then he quotes the scriptures. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive your spouse. As the Lord bears with you, so you should bear with your spouse. The Lord bears with us every day as we fall short of his will. Indeed, the distance between what Christ expects of us and what we achieve is infinitely greater than the distance between what we expect of our spouse and what he or she achieves. Does your spouse, or do you think about any relationship, do people meet your expectations? No, you don't meet your own expectations. Somehow, though, we let ourselves off the hook, but people don't meet your expectations, do they? And he's... He's acknowledging that, but what he's saying is the reality is the chasm between my expectations for Hallie and where she actually shows up at the end of the day, the distance between those two, right, is infinitely less than the distance between the expectations Christ has for his followers and where I measure up at the end of the day. You feeling that? And so this vertical truth then needs to be bent horizontally In the same way Christ is patient with us when we don't meet up, he bears with us in the same way. I'm going to bend that out towards the people in my life, horizontally. We'll end with these final words. Christ always forgives more and endures more than we do. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Bear with as he bears with you. This holds true whether you are married to a believer or an unbeliever. Let the measure of God's grace in you in the cross of Christ be the measure of your grace to your spouse. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The vertical relationship you have with God should be reflected, manifested in, bent outwards in the way you see and treat people. Now, bending grace and forgiveness towards people does not remove accountability. It just means that accountability is tempered with grace. There are two ways to hold somebody accountable. One is to come in arrogance with bitterness and frustration and anger. You said you're going to do this and you didn't. I'm holding you accountable. Okay? That's not tempered with grace. There's another way to say, listen, 
I know we've talked about this before, and this is something you've shared with me that you're really working on. You've even asked me uh, to speak into your life in this area and humility and, and tenderness and grace. You say, hey, I just want to mention to you, you know, this is what I see, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. And if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. There's, that's a different form of accountability, right? One is tempered with grace and forgiveness, and I'm not coming at you with a hammer to pound you down. I'm coming with you as a brother in Christ to actually to lift you up. Verse 18, all of this is from God who, through Christ, okay, all of this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and, this is a really powerful and right here. This is where Paul says, okay, we've been talking so far vertically, now it's going to bend out horizontally and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. There's cosmic, isn't it? That's big. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, the first part of verse 20, we are ambassadors, representatives of Christ, God making his his appeal through us. I think it's helpful for us to talk a minute about what reconciliation means from God's perspective. It's, it's, it's a beautiful Greek word, and it literally means to exchange something. It's not just taking away bitterness, but it's an exchange of something. So first and foremost, let's talk about the vertical exchange that has taken place on our behalf. If you're taking notes, God exchanged the wrath we deserved for the righteousness of Christ. We can't hear this truth too many times. Okay? So let's talk about what happened at the cross from a cosmic perspective. This is what I call the great collision of wrath and mercy. The, um, the mercy of God. Rich, full, more than you and I could ever tap into meets the wrath of God, the place where God is faithful to be just on the cross. Now, when we look at the cross, we talk about this often. It's, it's horrific and it's beautiful at the same time. It's horrific uh, because of the brutality, the suffering, the blood that the Son of God endured. And when we see Christ on the cross, what we're seeing is the wrath of God that was due us, okay, God being faithful and just, faithful to his own word to say sin won't go unpunished. When we see the horrific cross, what we need to remember is God is keeping his word. Sin will not go unpunished. So how does a God full of mercy also maintain his justice? He says, it won't go unpunished, but I'm going to send my son as a substitution for you. I'm going to pour my wrath out on him. The curse that you deserve, I'm going to put on him. He became the curse for us. But remember, it's not just a one-way street. It's an exchange. So the wrath that I deserve went that way, but what happened in return is the righteousness of Christ, the one who stood at the beginning of his ministry and said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it perfectly, every iota. 
A righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. I have come to fulfill it. He said it at the end of his ministry after the resurrection. I have fulfilled everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the writings. That Christ who is perfect in every way then extends his righteousness to us. It's the most unfair of prisoner swaps. The only person who was perfectly innocent became guilty on our behalf as he bore our sins on the cross. And in that moment, exchanged to us his innocence. Now, so it's so much more than this um, childhood superstitious prayer, like something cosmic is happening when you yield your life to Christ. It's more than God just saying, you know what, I'm going to overlook it this time, but just do better. When your sins are forgiven, right, you participate in that. And your sins are poured out on Christ. And he, the forgiveness he gives you is a righteousness that, righteousness that only Jesus could earn. And he gives it to us freely. Now that's the exchange of reconciliation. Now what did Paul just say then? You and I then have been given this ministry of exchange. Of reconciliation. God has exchanged the wrath that we deserve for the righteousness of Christ. I'm going to read a few verses from Colossians here. I'm just going to read them. Uh, some from chapter 1, a few from chapter 2, a few from chapter 3. Where Paul, he hits the overview of the cosmic perspective of reconciliation. Brings it back to a personal perspective. And then says to us now... You and I, then, are to be agents, ambassadors, representatives of reconciliation. Starting in Colossians chapter 1, you can read these on the screen, verse 13. This is about Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's pretty big. That transfer has taken place through the cross. Verse, 9, verse 14 in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to jump to verse 19, Jerry. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the body, or excuse me, by the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body by flesh, of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, it's the most unfair of prisoner swaps. You get to be holy and blameless. Come on, right? Who has earned that? Who can pay that back? None of us. That's God's perspective of reconciliation. Not, as long as you promise not to do that again, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll, I'll trust you as you earn it. See, that's, when, that's how we regard people in the flesh. But that's not true reconciliation. According to God's word, there's an exchange that takes place. Chapter 2 of Colossians, starting in verse 13 again. And you, don't forget, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by, listen to this, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. At the cross, your legal debt, legal to what? Legal according to the state of Texas, the United States of America, 
the UN? No. Where you broke God's law. That, that's the legal debt that Christ has paid. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and, the, and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Chapter 3, two verses. Therefore, ah, Paul, he swings some pretty big therefores. Builds these huge theological vertical cases about what's true for us in Christ. And then he'll throw in a therefore. And he says, now you, basically, you go do and likewise now. Therefore, this is uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Since this has been done for you, you now put these things on. What are we putting on? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. You also must forgive. You must forgive. But pastor, do I have to forgive? I mean, I've been hurt really bad. Yes. How can you say that? He or she has like really been evil towards me. The only way I can say that is to not regard the situation according to the flesh, but to see it from an eternal perspective, to understand the hurt that that person caused you, the great chasm between the way you think you ought to have been treated, yet the way you actually were, is infinitely smaller than the chasm between the way, between what Christ expects of you and how you actually performed. There's no comparison. Now that should not make us angry, that should break our hearts to understand that truth. If you've ever been hurt, think of that then as a small sample of how we have offended and hurt the Father. That might help. In the smallest and the biggest offenses between one another, we should see them as just a small drop in the bucket compared to our offenses, right? That God would see his son butchered on a cross on our behalf. As ambassadors of Christ, if you're taking notes, as ambassadors of Christ, we, when we extend the grace of God freely towards others, the same way God freely extended his grace towards us, we become a tangible expression of the gospel. Now, this doesn't take the place of needing to proclaim the gospel, but this is the way we reflect his image. We need to think about that as I... Choose to forgive. Um, and you know what? And maybe some of the smaller things are even some of the hardest because they're happening between like people we love deeply, like our spouses. I think sometimes my wife is some, one of the hardest persons for me to forgive, even though her offenses oftentimes are so tiny or sometimes they're not even offenses. They're just my arrogance and pride. Sometimes it's so hard for me to, to swallow my pride, muster up the words, and say I'm sorry. Anybody else struggle there? Yet, we're told to bear his image in the world. And when I choose and say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. I am, first of all, I'm engaging in an eternal perspective. I'm operating by faith. I'm being hopefully compelled and controlled and moved and fueled by the love of Christ. I'm doing it on that foundation, right? My aim is to please him more than myself or even her. But as I choose to do that, I am moving towards becoming a reflection of Christ 
to my wife. And the same is true of any other relationship. You see, we're to receive freely, but the free grace he gives us transforms us into his image. That's what it means to begin to bend it outward, what we've received vertically. We begin to bear his image. Let's finish up the last two verses here. The rest of chapter, uh, verse 20 and then in 21. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, first and foremost. That doesn't happen. The rest of this won't be happening. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The great exchange. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's never been a greater move of reconciliation than your salvation. Our reconciliation to God should affect our relationships with one another because of the exchange of our sin for the righteousness of Christ. If you're taking notes, our sin for the righteousness of Christ, we are to extend the same exchange to those who have offended us. We're to be ministers of reconciliation. As we've been forgiven, we are to forgive. Believers are to see others the way Christ sees them. Not according to the flesh, but according to the gospel. Now this could be applied to believers and non-believers, the way you see people. Does Christ look at non-believers with a sense of arrogance and pride and say, whenever you get your act together, that's when, that's when we can have a relationship. He says to the most obstinate among us, the invitation is open right now for you. Come, be reconciled to me. And then, of course, when we think of believers, if you're married to a believer, you, this applies to believers, that you see them as new creations, not regarding them according to the flesh. A couple of questions for us to think of, and we're going to move to take communion here in just a moment. And According to 1 Corinthians 11, we are to take personal inventory every time uh, we get prepared to take communion together, that we make sure our vertical relationship with the Father is intact, but we also think about our horizontal relationships. This is counsel from Jesus himself. You come to the Lord bringing your gift to the altar, and you realize there's an offense, something's not reconciled, leave your gift, go get reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. Paul says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 11. And so we know that that's a large part of getting prepared to take communion. I want to ask a few questions for us to think of and then move into a time of getting prepared for communion. And I want to begin where Paul ended when he said, we implore you to be reconciled to Christ. It begins with this question, have you received the exchange that God is offering you? Well, what exchange? If I do all the do's and don't do all the don'ts, then he'll love me? Nope, that's a religion it's an expression of religion. That's not an expression of the gospel. The exchange is what we just read. Have you received the exchange of Jesus becoming sin on your behalf and giving to you his innocence and righteousness? And if the answer is no, how do I do that? By faith. By faith in Christ alone. He bids you come to the cross right now. Bring your mess. Bring your hurt, bring your pain, your suffering, your shame. Bring every dark 
an evil and wicked thing you've ever thought or done or said. Open up the closet, bring it all to the foot of the cross and lay it there and exchange it by faith and receive the forgiveness and righteousness of Christ. You can do that where you're seated by just in your own words praying to the Father. Father, I want that exchange. I want to lay this down and I want the righteousness of Christ that I might be a new creation. And in that moment, in that moment, the exchange happens.